All right. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 8. We're in chapter 8. We are almost done with the book of Ecclesiastes. Just, just a few more chapters. And I hope this uh, series has been a blessing to you. Um, in the 1940s, a chance encounter occurred at a mental institution in Maryland. Uh, two patients met and began having a conversation. Now, as luck would have it, these patients both suffered paranoid delusions. But not just any delusions, the same delusion. You see, both of these women were convinced that they were the Virgin Mary. And so the two began to talk. And the older woman introduced herself to the younger woman as Mary Mother of God. Confused, the younger patient says to the older patient, Why, you can't be, my dear. You must be crazy. I, I am the mother of God. And the older patient replies back, I'm afraid it's you who are mixed up. I am the Virgin Mary. And back and forth this went uh, for some time, each presenting to the other their case for why they actually were uh, the Virgin Mary. Now, apparently, the younger Mary presented a better case because after a while, the older patient conceded and in so doing, ended her delusion. Now, that, of course, doesn't mean that she was cured of delusions uh, at all. She just latched on to a different delusion, replying, well, if you are Mary, then I must be Mary's mother, Anne. But in letting go of that delusion, it actually opened her up to treatment uh, thereafter. She was much more receptive to being convinced that her delusions were not accurate. And she eventually improved to a point of being well enough to be released from this mental institution. A decade later, a psychologist named Milton Rokic read about this chance encounter. And he decided that it would be the perfect start for an experiment. He surmised that when you are confronted by someone else with the very same delusion, eventually your own delusion would break. And so he searched through a a bunch of different mental institutions until he found his subjects for his study. Three men of various ages all of whom were entirely convinced that they were Jesus Christ in the flesh. Okay, this is a true story. All right, I'm not making any of this up. So he arranged for each of these parents to be, uh, patients I'm sorry, to be transferred to the Ypsilanti State Hospital in 1959 in, in Ypsilanti, Michigan. And so these three patients are placed in the same ward. They're, they're placed in the same room. They have adjacent beds. And so on the first day of the experiment, he brought all three of them into an interview room and asked them to introduce themselves. The first man was a 58-year-old man named Joseph. Joseph had been in mental institutions for 20 years. And he began to list off rather innocuous details about his life. And at the prodding of Dr. Rokic, who said to him, Is there anything else you want to tell us? Joseph replied, Well, yes, I am God. 
70-year-old Clyde introduced himself next. He also shared harmless details about himself. And at the end of his introduction, he said, I also have other names. Among them are God and Jesus. Finally, there was 38-year-old Leon. Now, Leon was sent to the crazy house because his very religious mother had come home from church one day to find Leon in the house destroying crucifixes and any other religious ornamentation in the house, telling his mother that she needed to stop worshiping these false idols and fall on her knees before him and worship him as Lord because he, after all, was Jesus Christ. Soon after he was sent to the mental house. So Leon, in this conversation, introduces himself saying, it just so happens that my birth certificate says, I am Dr. Domino Dominorum et Rex Rexarum Simplis Christianos Pueris Mentalis Doctor, which is Latin for Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Simple Christian Boy Psychiatrist. He continued, it also states on my birth certificate that I am the reincarnation of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This is when the fun began to start. The first guy chimes in and, and says, well, well, he says that he's the incarnation of Jesus Christ and I can't get it. I know who I am. I am God. I am Jesus, I am the Holy Ghost, and if I wasn't, by gosh, I wouldn't claim to lay hold to anything of the sort. I am Christ. Now, I don't want to say out loud that I'm Christ, the the Holy Ghost, the Spirit, because I know that this is an insane house, and, and you have to be very careful about saying that sort of thing. Very astute observation for someone in a mental institution. So the two of them begin to argue. And uh, Dr. Rokich is observing like a kind of psychiatric Jerry Springer in the midst of all this. And finally, he turns to the second man and, and he says, well, would you like to interject into this argument between these two? And he says, yes, I represent the resurrection. Yea, I am the same as Jesus. I am God, the Holy Spirit in the flesh. And the three of them began to scream at each other, each defending their identity as Lord of heaven and earth. And at the end of this first session, all three of them remained unmoved. And so Dr. Rokich subjected them to a number of experiments in the months that followed. He ensured that they were always together. They sat together at every meal. They worked the same job together in the laundry room. They slept in adjacent beds and had daily sessions with Rokich's research assistants. And at various times, he would ask them, why do you think you are here? And these patients would give various answers, which included things like Joseph claiming that he was there as a control subject to convince the other two that they were insane, since clearly he himself was God. After weeks and weeks and weeks of this daily dance, the only change in these men was just an increase in tension and anxiety. 
At one point, there was a fight that broke out in the lunchroom as the other patients in the institution pitted them against each other. One guy tapped one of them behind uh, the, the spot in line and he said, hey, that guy over there says he's Jesus. And the guy's like, that's not true, I am. And a fist fight broke out. Uh, apparently no one told them that Jesus didn't cuss and brawl, but that didn't stop the delusion. Now, frustrated that no progress was being made, Dr. Rokich decided to up his efforts. And in doing so, dipped further into the unethical by trying to deceive these men in other ways. For example, he tried to convince one of the men that he was married and had a wife sending him letters. And he would read these letters from her to this man. Of course, he was not married. At other points, he was showing the the three men fake newspaper clippings about the experiment that they were doing, which demonstrated that all three of them were delusional. At one point, he hired a beautiful assistant to flirt with Leon and tempt him into sin. Because, after all, Jesus doesn't sin. But nothing worked. This lasted for over two years. And after these two years, frustrated, Dr. Rokic ended the study. These three men held on just as firmly to their delusions as before. And they found new ways to justify their beliefs. For example, Clyde believed that he was Jesus and that the two other men were puppets controlled by robots. Leon believed that he was Jesus and that the other two were just attention-seeking imposters. And Joseph very wisely pointed out that the others were patients in a mental hospital, so they must be insane. Ironically, at the end of this experiment, the only person who was cured of their Messiah complex was Dr. Rokich himself. As he reflected back on this experiment years later, he wrote in a book titled The Three Christs of Ypsilanti, this reflection. He said, While I had failed to cure the three Christs of their delusions, they had succeeded in curing me of mine. My godlike delusion that I could change them by omnipotently and omnisciently arranging and rearranging their daily lives within the framework of a total institution. I came to realize, dimly at the time, but increasingly more clearly as the years passed, that I really had no right, even in the name of science, to play God and to interfere around the clock with their daily lives. In our series through the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon has been working hard to root out our false ways of thinking. He's been trying to prune away all of the ideas that we have about trying to find meaning in life outside of God. He has explained to us that in this life, if this is all we get, if these 70 years under the sun are all that there is, it is vanity, bubbles, transient, impossible to understand, here today, gone tomorrow, that there's nothing new under the sun, that nothing lasts, nothing satisfies. And all in an effort to get us to understand that, 
that actually this is not all that we get. This is not all that there is. That this is a lead up in the real journey. And that is an eternity with the God who created us. And so with that in mind, the things that seem so meaningless in life are demonstrated to have greater meaning than we could have possibly imagined. We just need to see everything with eternal perspective. Today, Solomon will confront each one of us. He'll confront us in something that is deeply rooted and a widely shared delusion among us. And that is that I am God. And so are you, and so are you, and so are you. Eli's like, me? Me? So, Ecclesiastes chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There's no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is bubbles. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth. That there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said, this also is bubbles. And I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go well with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither the day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. How much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. In this chapter, Solomon is building a case for living wisely. 
And included in that is living wisely as a citizen, living wisely as a worshiper of God, and living wisely in the daily practice of life. Or spoken in the negative sense, Solomon addresses approaching the king wrongly, approaching God wrongly, and approaching life wrongly. So in this passage, living unwisely is described as being someone who tries to be bigger than what they are. They assert their own wants or desires or system of justice, even though they do not have the authority to do so. They approach the king with pride instead of humility. They walk into church acting like they can do whatever they want and still be okay with God. They act like they can control what happens to them in life. And Solomon says to them, humble yourself. What Solomon is trying to address in us is this delusion that we have that we are God. Now, I don't mean that literally, of course. I don't mean that any of us, hopefully, are asserting that they are literally the omnipotent, omniscient creator of the universe. But isn't it true that we live like that? We live like that, don't we? Don't we approach life as if we are the ones who are in charge of everything? Don't we approach life in the world like the world owes us something? Like we are the most important people in it? Don't we often act like we have everything all figured out and like we are always the smartest person in whatever room we walk into? And my goodness, don't we pray like this? Don't we pray like we are smarter than God? Like our plans are better than his. We look at his plan unfolding before our eyes and we say, yeah, this isn't correct. What I'm seeing here, not right. I know that there must be a better way than this. God, you've got it all wrong. Let me, let me spell it out for you, God. This is not supposed to happen to me, okay? This over here, this is what's supposed to happen to me. So how about you give me this instead of what you've given me, which is incorrect. We question and second guess every decision that God makes. We have a very clear picture in our minds of how we would do it differently. Or should I say rather, how we would do it better. And when God doesn't come through on our plan, we shake our fist at heaven and say, how dare you? And look, we, we live in America. If there's anything that America runs on, it is pride, right? It is central to the American ideal. If there's anything we value, it is the ultimate importance of the individual, We are born and bred to believe that we are the greatest, that no one else compares, and that we get to chase any dream that we want and accomplish whatever we've set our minds to, and that we deserve by some sort of intrinsic right, an easy life, personal liberty, however we define it, and the pursuit of our own definition of happiness, regardless of what anyone else thinks. We are raised to be like the three Christs of Ypsilanti. 
I am God. And I am the center of the universe. The problem is, life doesn't go the way we think it should. And we keep crashing our noses into the inconvenient limits of our knowledge and our ability. We are, we are curiously unable to know the answers or perform the miracles that our false identity claims we should be able to perform. And the other problem, the other problem, much like in Dr. Milton Rokic's experiments, is that we're surrounded by other people who also think that they are God as well. And they have their own ideas about how life should be and, and what they deserve and, and what it should cost me to worship them. Is there, is there any clearer picture of this conflict than the warring ideas of our political ideologies in the current climate? It's like watching Joseph and Clyde and Leon in Ypsilanti State Hospital. I'm God, I'll prove it to you. No, I'm God, I'll show you. And the fist fighting and the cussing commences. And the followers for each camp fill their feeds with their angry opinions. They wave their flags and they pronounce their curses on their enemy. Now, for those of you who are new who might be watching, you should know that I don't advocate any side in politics. If you missed our recent series on politics titled One God Under Nation, I encourage you to go back and and watch that. I'm in no way saying that politics is bad or that your passion for causes for candidates or camps is necessarily bad. What I, do so, what I do say very clearly is this. It is very easy for politics to become idolatry and for you to place your hope in a person or a party instead of Almighty God. And I believe that this is part of what Solomon reminds us of in this passage, as we shall see. So, let's start again with verse number one. Let's read verse number one again together. He says, Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. Verse one is the summary verse for the entire chapter. This is Solomon stating his thesis. And then in the verses thereafter, he shows us how this thesis plays out, how it looks in in actual life. And and he explains, like I said before, that a wise person is going to live well as a citizen, as a worshiper, and as a child of God. And so everything in in, in chapter 8 is going to come back to verse number 1. Solomon wants you to be wise. He wants you to live well. So, for example, he asks this rhetorical question. He asks, who knows the interpretation of a thing? And the answer to that rhetorical question is, no one. Literally, no one. And what we end up having in this chapter is very clear symmetry. I want you to see this. He starts the chapter by asking the question, who knows the interpretation of a thing? 
Then look at what he says in verses 16 and 17. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So he starts the chapter with the question, and then he ends the chapter with the answer. It's perfect symmetry. In in this chapter. And everything that comes in between the question and the answer is building one truth. A wise person is one that is going to know he does not have all the answers. Now, that doesn't mean that answers are bad, it doesn't mean that knowledge is bad, it doesn't mean that study is bad. What is bad is is us trying to get to a place where we think that we can be omniscient and omnipotent. Where we think that we have everything figured out, we have everything planned out, we have everything worked out. And to that, Solomon looks at us very clearly and says, you are not God. That is a delusion. And so, armed with that knowledge... He gives us a beautiful promise, and that is that a humble and wise life is a life that is far more enjoyable. Not because it's easier, not because it has less toil or less trouble, not because there's less bad things, but because it has the right perspective. He says here that it is man's wisdom that makes his face shine. A man's wisdom makes his face shine. Not ease, not getting your way all the time, not wealth, not power, not pleasure, or anything else. He says it is man's wisdom that makes his face to shine. He has the right perspective on everything that happens. And he also doesn't have unrealistic expectations that are doomed to disappoint. He has a healthy view, which leads to peace. He talks about the hardness of a face changing. It says, a man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. What does a hard face look like? It has a furrowed brow. It has gritted teeth, a jawline that is set. It has downcast eyes. Why? Because it reflects a person who is frustrated, disappointed, angry, determined to work hard enough to change things, or any mixture of those. It it reflects a person who's been beat up by life and by unexpected hardships. But he says that it's wisdom that releases the tension. Wisdom softens the face. Wisdom ungrits the teeth. Wisdom turns the eyes upward. It it turns the furrowed brow into a peaceful countenance. And I want to emphasize that he's not giving us some unrealistic expectation about being happy all the time. That he's not saying everything's going to be sunshine and rainbows. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that your approach to every day needs to be one that is guided by eternal perspective and the unshakable knowledge that God is in control 
and that it's not about you. And when you're armed with that knowledge, whatever you are facing, it brings peace. So what are some of the ways that this plays out? Solomon begins to show us. So here's point number one. If you're taking notes, here's point number one. No earthly king is God, and that includes you. No earthly king is God, and that includes you. Take a look once more at verses two through nine. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. So the first place that Solomon points us to is our relationship to authority. Now, of course, in our society, we don't have a king or a queen, right? We have a federal republic. The people are technically the ones who hold power, but we elect officials who exercise that power on our behalf, or so we think. (laughs) So it's supposed to be. So we don't have a system of government in which the president or, or anyone else can just make whatever decision they desire without any backlash or without any checks and balances. In Solomon's day, the monarchy could unilaterally decide practically anything they chose with no consequence whatsoever and no one to check them. And pretty much the only way to go against the king's wishes would be to overthrow the monarchy to depose the king or to assassinate the king. As long as the king was sitting on the throne, whatever he says goes, and there's nothing you could say about it. Citizens at that point didn't have the same kind of rights that we do now. The king had to be approached as someone who had total control over your life. So it's not really a surprise that he advises the, the reader to keep the king's command, right? It, it's not a surprise that he advises humility before the king obedience to the king because no one has the authority to step to him. Look at what he says in in verse four. He says, the word of the king is supreme and who may say to him, what are you doing? This is another rhetorical question where the answer is no one. You can't step to the king and say, "Uh uh-uh, you must approach with humility. So it's easy then to ask ourselves how we can apply this today in a much different government system where we do have the right to participate in the political process. Well, the truth is, Solomon's main point here doesn't really have anything to do with a system of government. He's using citizenship to the king as an analogy. He's using it as an example to remind us that we are not in charge. He's saying, okay, Look at your relationship to the king. 
Look at how you have to recognize your humble state. That is how you're supposed to live. He's, he's not really making here either any kind of value statement on monarchy politics and, and the need for us to see the king as supreme. That would be a, a pretty random insertion into the text and, and pretty off topic, right? Like this whole time, he's been talking about eternal perspective and, and trying to, to make clear that he has seen it all. He's experienced it all. He's, he's found it all lacking and, and how he wants us to have a joy-filled life. But right in the middle of that, he's like, now remember everyone, I'm in charge. Do whatever I say. I'm your supreme. That's not what's going on. And remember, Solomon is the king. So this is not Solomon trying to flex, okay? This is not saying, when you come before me, make sure you recognize I'm the king. Kiss the ring. Not what Solomon's doing. Again, it would be inserted here randomly, and then he goes right back to talking about wisdom. Doesn't fit. Yes, he is the king, but he's not taking this opportunity to get people to fall in line. He's using his relationship to them as an analogy. And you'll even see here in a few moments that he flat out admits his own limited nature. Okay? When he points out that no one can question the king and say, what are you doing? He is saying that this is the very type of attitude we should have toward God. And that attitude toward God will flow into an attitude toward human leadership in our lives, whether we agree with that human leadership or not. Look at, look at verse 5. He says, Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. So he's saying here, there is a way to walk humbly and obediently, even when you are under an evil ruler. Even when you are under a ruler that you do not personally agree with, Solomon says that wisdom will help you to be a good citizen even under leadership that you personally oppose. Wisdom will teach you how to walk under unwise guidance. And so ultimately what he's getting at here is that if our attitude toward an earthly king is not humble, there's no way that our attitude toward the heavenly king will be humble. If we can't humble ourselves under an earthly king, there's no way we can humble ourselves under an eternal king. The one is greater than the other. Our attitude toward earthly leadership is a reflection of our attitude about ourselves and ultimately our attitude about God. And far too often, our attitude about ourselves is that we are, in fact, God. We believe ourselves to be more powerful than what we are. We are not unlike the three Christs of Ypsilanti. We believe that we are in control. And so Solomon gives us a powerful reminder that we are not in verse 8. He says, no man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. So he gives in this verse 
four illustrations. Four illustrations for proving that you do not have ultimate control. You can't control the wind or spirit. In in the Hebrew, wind and spirit are the same word. You can't control the wind. A soldier cannot discharge themselves from war. No one can decide how long they're going to live. And a wicked person can never free themselves from wickedness. Each one of these is saying, you don't have control. You don't have control. You don't have control. So what he's saying is, be humble because you do not have control. Put this together with verse 7 where he says, For he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? So one commentator, William Barrick, says, All four of these illustrations add to verse 7 and expand the picture of human inability to control their circumstances. And these realms include the future, climate, death, war, and salvation. All are outside mankind's control. Only God controls these things. So one right after another, in five different ways, Solomon is saying, humble yourself because you do not have control. Humble yourself, you are not God. Humble yourself, you can't change this. Now that's one side. There's also another side, which I alluded to before. Remember that this comes in a section dealing with your relationship to the king. And Solomon is the king. So not only is Solomon reminding you that you do not have control, Solomon is also saying that no king has control either. He doesn't say, no man has control over this except the king. So remember, respect the king. Right after he says, this is how you should relate to the king, he says, because listen, nobody can control this, including me. He's telling you to deal humbly with your earthly leaders and to not have a supreme view of them either. Do not place your ultimate trust in any earthly leader. Nor should you have any earthly leader have your ultimate fear. No kind of king, insert whatever word you want there, king, president, politician, leader, no king can control the future. No king can free or enslave your soul. No king can decide how long you're going to live. No king can decide what's going to happen to you after you die. No king can set you free from wickedness. The king might seem powerful. Your boss might seem powerful, might seem like they hold all the keys to your life, but he's saying they don't. And remember, Solomon is writing this during a time when kings viewed themselves literally as gods. In this culture, people worshipped kings as deities. And Solomon, again, speaking as the king himself, is saying, kings are just men. (laughs) Do not put your hope in them. Don't treat them like they are God. Be humble Be respectful, be obedient as far as wisdom allows, but do not worship a leader. This goes back to the whole series on politics again. We live in a time when leaders are worshipped like gods or scorned like imps. 
we see in front of us ways that people put their hope so strongly in a leader. They put their allegiance and their passion and their energy so much into a man that they will storm the Capitol building during an active session of Congress while waving that man's flag. Rarely, if ever, has there been a clearer sign of idolatry during our lifetime. That is what it looks like when you treat a man like a god. No man is a god, whether he's a king or a subject. Solomon says, no man is a god, whether a king or a subject or anyone on the ladder in between. You are not God. And neither are the people around you above you, below you, or anywhere near you. So that's point number one. No earthly king is God, and that includes you. Point number two. Worship humbly, with eyes turned upward, not inward. Worship humbly, with eyes turned upward, not inward. Take a look again at verses 10 through 13. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is bubbles. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear God. So first, he talks about the attitude of people who live like the three Christs of Ypsilanti. They have tremendous arrogance. They keep getting away with evil. They start to believe the lie that they are above discipline. He talks about them going in and out of the holy place. The wicked are going in and out of the holy place and they are praised for doing such things. Their view of themselves has elevated to a point where they are now above any kind of accountability. Few places depict this attitude uh, better than Psalm 94. Psalm 94, uh, verses 1 through 7. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long should the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict their heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say... The Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Their attitude as they're living wickedly, as they're doing these tremendously evil things is, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. I am going to do whatever I want because God does not care or is not there. I do not have any kind of authority, uh, any kind of, he does not have any authority over me. So I can do whatever I please. This is not something that, that just starts overnight. 
Okay, this doesn't happen in a flash. This is gradual. Gradually, further and further, we decline into this type of attitude. And he talks about this decline in verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. So have you ever done something that you know is wrong, but then there are no consequences, at least immediately. Nothing bad happens. No punishment, no objection, no getting in trouble. What did it make you want to do? The same thing again. You got away with it once, you can get away with it a second time. Even though you know it's still wrong, nothing happened. No one noticed. No one got hurt. So I can do it again. Soon that thing becomes a habit. Soon the the fight that you're supposed to have against sin becomes more and more half-hearted. Eventually, there's no fight against that sin at all. Eventually, you believe yourself to be God. Uh, One example of this in recent news would be Jerry Falwell Jr. of my alma mater, Liberty University. Uh, Ringing us in with pride. Jerry Falwell Jr., of course, is the son of Jerry Falwell, the founder of Liberty University. At the death of his father, he took over the leadership uh, of Liberty University. And slowly but surely, this soft-spoken, in-the-shadows lawyer type grew more and more bold, more and more proud, more and more arrogant. His Twitter began to reflect this arrogance as he latched himself onto President-elect Trump as he began to be the premier evangelical face in the world uh, connected to a powerful man. It began to be reflected in the way that liberty operated, that the bottom line was more important than people. Compromise after compromise after compromise was made until it all came spilling out for the entire world to see. It began with a dumb tweet that he himself put up, standing on a yacht with his pants undone, arm around a girl, holding a cup of what he claimed to be black water as a prop. And from then, the investigations began to show a world of sinful living. Eventually, one compromise led to another, to another, to another, to another, to where this powerful man was dragged down by his sin, by his wife's sin, by his own view of himself as being above authority. He viewed himself like one of the three Christs of Ypsilanti. I am God, and God does not see God does not perceive. And so what Solomon does here is he reminds us that this life is not all that there is. Even if it seems like sin does not go unpunished right away, it will be. 
And so what he does, as he's been doing this entire book, is he takes our eyes off the temporal and he sets our eyes on the eternal. Where he says here in verse uh, 12, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. In verse 10, he, he talks about the wicked being buried. They are buried and they used to live in this way. They used to go in and out of the holy place and they're they praised for, the, for doing such things. And it might look like justice is not being served. But Solomon points out, yes, it will be, even if it's not as quickly as we would like. Because there are, there are people, righteous people, watching as, as wicked people are living these comfortable, cushy lives, not being judged, and are likely asking, why isn't God taking care of them? Why isn't God doing something about them? And Solomon says, he will. Don't worry. Verse 13, it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. It will not be well for the wicked when they stand before God. And so how should we stand before God? Well, he already told us in verse 2 through 5 when he was talking about our relationship to the king. We should stand before God like that with an attitude of whatever you say goes. I will obey you. I'm not going to try to step to you and say, what are you doing? I will keep your commands. I will have a wise heart. I will not be hasty to go from your presence. And, and that's exactly what he talked about the wicked doing wrongly. They go in and out of the holy place. And they're praised when they do such things. And, and in verse 3, he had said, don't be hasty to go out from the king's presence. So we ought to approach God with humility. I want to remind us of the words of Dr. Milton Rokich at the end of his experiment when he said, when, while I had failed to cure the three Christ of their delusions, they succeeded in curing me of mine. My godlike delusion that I could change them by omnipotently and omnisciently arranging and rearranging their daily lives within the framework of a total institution. I came to realize, dimly at the time, but increasingly more clearly as the years passed, that I really had no right, even in the name of science, to play God and interfere around the clock with their daily lives. We need to be cured. Cured of our God-like delusion that we can play God around the clock with our own lives. Arranging and rearranging everything to fit our own agenda. All in order to confirm our own delusions of grandeur. We need to turn our eyes upward rather than inward. We need to follow the instructions that Solomon gave in, in the second half uh, of verse 12, where he says, I know it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. Remember who he is and remember who you are. Um, there's a scene in one of my favorite movies of all time, Rudy. Uh, hopefully everyone in our community has seen it because it's a movie about Notre Dame and that's where we live. Um, it's my favorite movie growing up. I've seen it a hundred times. And there's a scene where Rudy is frustrated about the fact that he's been trying everything possible to get into Notre Dame and thus far he has not been successful. And he's at the last chance. And 
He feels like he's done everything and nothing has worked. And, and so he finds himself in the basilica and a priest approaches him. And, and Rudy begins to, to talk about, I've done everything. Should, should I pray harder? Is, is that what I'm missing? Do I need to be praying harder? And the priest is like, I don't really think that's your problem. And Rudy begins to talk about his, his own effort. And, and the priest says to him, Son, in 35 years of religious study, I've only come up with two hard, incontrovertible facts. There is a God, and I'm not him. We need to adopt that view. There is a God, I am not him. Finally, point number three. A humble heart can be filled with joy. A humble heart can be filled with joy. Look once more at verses 14 and 15. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is bubbles and I commend joy for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful for this will go well with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So he is honest here, right? He points out the reality that all of us see in the world. We all see it, okay? It's, it's clear in front of us, and it is not fair. He talks about how there are some righteous people that are treated as if they're wicked, and there are some wicked people that are treated as if they're righteous. The reward that they seem to be getting is backwards, We all see it and we know it is not fair. It doesn't make sense. The math does not add up. Why did my father, who was one of the most righteous people I've ever known, live to age 49 and die in a horrific accident? And Hugh Hefner lived to age 91 to his final days living in the same lascivious nature as he did the entire time. It does not measure up. He got everything in the world. My dad got nothing. It's not fair. And he says, this is bubbles. It's bubbles. It's easy for us to look at these things and throw up our hands in frustration and say, it's not worth it. What's the use even trying to be righteous? What's the use? But he doesn't end there. After pointing out that inequity, hope is in verse 15. I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go well with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. He says, when you are humble, when, when you know who you are and you accept who you are not, when, when you have that eternal perspective, you can sit back, you can let God be in charge, and you can actually enjoy every moment that you get with a heart that is filled with peace. The pressure of figuring out life is no longer on you. Let let me remind us once more of his thesis statement in verse 1. 
Who is like the wise? Who knows the interpretation of the thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine. The hardness of his face is changed. This is joy that is not achieved by earning it, by planning it, by figuring things out, by accomplishing, by any human effort whatsoever. This is joy that is achieved by breaking out of our God delusion. Joy that comes by knowing there is a God and I am not him. By trusting everything into the hands of that only true God. We are set free to enjoy the life that he's given us. Whether it seems that we're rewarded for it in the short term or not. We know that there is eternity on the other side. We hold on to the words that he spoke in verses 12 and 13. I know that it will go well for those who fear God. Because they fear before him. They don't have to worry about the day of death like the wicked do. I saw the wicked buried and they used to have it all. But they then stand before God. We don't have to worry about that. I don't have to worry about the day of death because I know whom I fear. The wicked may get away with things now or they might seem to, but it's only in this life under the sun. Only if this life is all that there is do the wicked have an advantage. But if there's something beyond, it's not that way. With our eyes full of eternity, we can live in the present with a shining face. Without the hardness of repeatedly disappointing effort clouding our countenance. Otherwise, we are doomed to live the rest of our lives in a delusion that we are God. And arguing with every other person around us who suffers from the same delusion. And coming up with all kinds of ways that we can still hold on to that belief despite everything to the contrary. May we approach the throne of grace with a humble heart. Knowing that there is a God and I am not him. And may that realization, that trust, that eternal perspective fill our hearts with joy and make our faces shine. Let's pray.